Well, we'll just go ahead and get started. I am glad that every one of you is here today because I have something for each one of you. I think this, what we're going to look at is applicable to each one of you. So you just want to hang on because we'll get there kind of thing. So we're going to look at infant baptism, circumcision in the Bible. Now you might think, why on earth are we going to talk about infant baptism? Because we already know that's not what we do. Baptist church, that's not uh, something that I really need to convince you on, I, pr I would suppose. And yet, we're going to look at a particular passage of Scripture that talks about baptism, but uh, it's a passage of Scripture that not many Baptists really want to get too far in because it also mentions circumcision, and there's, this passage is used by many to justify infant baptism. But actually, I think when understood in its proper context and proper meaning, it's a wonderful passage to use about baptism, and it actually teaches us about an aspect of baptism that probably, perhaps, we need to be emphasized just as much as the other parts about baptism are. You know, baptism is, a, I've got a definition of it, so I'm not going to say the whole thing quite right, but, you know, baptism is an identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but it actually expands on that much better so we can understand what does it mean we're a an identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and why is that important? So, okay, but there is something, no matter what your age is, and I see a young person or two back there, no matter what your age is, this is there's something here for you. So keep that in mind. I'll be a little bit while before we get there. All right, let's start with prayer. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity we have to just study your word and look at various passages of scripture that will be helpful to us to understand an aspect or to clarify and emphasize an aspect of baptism that you intend for us to know about. And for this, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're talking about baptism, Romans 6 is a great passage of scripture. All throughout the Gospels, you can see people getting baptized and even in the book of Acts as well. So those passages give us good examples of how baptism should be done. And like I said, I don't think there's going to be a real big question in our mind about the fact you know, that, we, that baptism is, should be done by believers. And that there's also a passage in 1 Peter 3 that is a little bit tricky too. But there's also one other passage, and that's what we're going to look at here. But first of all, what do I do? I'm not as I'm not as technical as many people are. Slide it down, Okay. Problems with infant baptism. I push and I turn at the same time. That gives me two things to do, and that's not easy for me. But anyway. Infant baptism is not scriptural, and this is why I'm looking at it from an aspect of, of the passage that we're going to look at is used as the number one passage to justify infant baptism, especially in the baptism uh, circumcision analogy, and yet I'm saying that it's not, spirit, uh, not scriptural at all. It also, uh, infant baptism displays a strong reliance on a certain theological system, actually several theological systems, and tradition than on God's Word. And that's a problem because, and then by the way, that's really easy for us to fall into too, not necessarily in this particular application, but we need to be careful about relying too much on, on tradition too, and, and we have to always guard against that. 
but but certainly is true of Reformed and Presbyterian people who believe in a covenant theology. But it also, uh, I had a student that told me once that that uh, in her Lutheran church she was told that the the fact that she should be baptized because of of circumcision, and this is the passage that does that. Of course, in the Lutheran tradition, they're 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 much more strong on baptism. Baptism is the, is the time when you're justified. Baptism is the act of regeneration. You're, because you're baptized, your sins are forgiven. And you think, wait a minute, Martin. What happened to justification by faith? So anyway, kind of it's hard to, uh, to reconcile that. Anyway, infant baptism creates an unbiblical church that is unsafe people as members was never God's intention for his church for unsaved people to be part of the church and as far as membership in the church. And yet that's what you have because when you're baptized, that's your entrance into the church. And since the person doesn't actually have any say in the matter because they're done as a, as a baby, so they have to have another ceremony to show that a person actually wants to be a member of the church when they get a little older. Does anybody know what that ceremony is called? Anybody know? What's that? Confirmation. confirmation. That's right. My wife comes from a Catholic country, so they have confirmation. But but also, so do many other uh, different churches. But why do they have that? Well, because confirmation is a time when the person says, I want to go ahead and be a part of this, you know, and, and be a Christian and whatever, apparently. I mean, this is kind of a more of a traditional thing anyway. But the point is, is that that's actually what baptism is supposed to do. Baptism is supposed to show, hey, I want to be a follower of Christ. I want people to know about me being a follower of Christ. I want to act upon the fact that I'm a follower of Christ. And uh, so there's a problem with that when you have to make up a ceremony that takes the place of a biblical one, you know. So I, I think there's, there's challenges there. Infant baptism diminishes justification by faith, certainly very much so in the Lutheran tradition, but also you would have, I remember growing up hearing evangelists and others talk about the fact that you're not saved just because your mom and dad are Christians. And I thought, okay, I'm not saved because my mom and dad are Christians. But, you know, that is so compelling for other people because they would say you're in the covenant community, your mom and dad's a Christian, you're a Christian too. And with the infant baptism, it just kind of slides right in there. And people can say, why am I a Christian? Well, I got baptized as a baby, and, and, uh, and my parents are Christians. I, I, I've always been a Christian, you know, at least since I was two or three you know, or months old or whatever it would be. But anyway... Infant baptism destroys the truth of baptism and following and identifying with Christ the public profession of faith. And that's why they've had to invent a new ceremony. Now, that's not a very, it's not recent. I mean, confirmation goes back 1,000, 1,500, 1,600 years. But, but they, had to in, they had to come up with that because it, they've already kind of missed the public pref profession because they don't baptize pers a person who, who has believed first. A baby can't really believe first. So that they kind of get the order wrong there. So anyway, infant baptism gives a false sense of, of security of salvation. And again, you'll hear people say, you were baptized. Now, you may not feel saved today. 
you may not feel saved tomorrow. Maybe you have something go wrong. But you can trust your baptism. You're baptized and you're saved. That, that's more of a Lutheran flavor there. But, but you should trust your baptism because it happened. And you can know that it happened and it's not based on your feelings or anything. So, but, uh, but again, that's the wrong order. That, and it's, it's not what, what Christ intends for us to be pictured there. Infant baptism turns the ordinance of baptism into a sacrament. So in the sense that now God is doing something. God is placing that baby into the covenant of faith or placing or performing justification or, or regeneration on that baby, depending on which faith tradition you're following. But, but anyway, so now God's at work. When we say that baptism is an ordinance, we mean that we are doing something God wants us to do. Why? Because God already did the work. He already sent his son to die on the cross for, his, for our sins. And we're just acknowledging that we believed, we trusted in Christ to, to forgive us of our sins. And, and we put our trust for our salvation in the fact that Christ died on the cross for our sins, not because we were baptized. But, it, but it, so it's a response to us. But when God is active, okay, he's like in the Lord's Supper, he's forgiving sins or he's cleansing or he's, he's uh, infusing someone with grace or in baptism he's justifying them or something like that. That, that makes it a sacrament. That makes it that, that God is active and that, that the, the priest or the shaman or the witch doctor or whatever, the holy man is manipulating the elements to get the gods to do what we want. And that's more the sacramental flavor that you see in, in some. Then lastly, baptism violates the regulative principle, which doesn't mean a whole lot to me, and maybe not to you either, but in, say, the, Christ, the, um, the Reformed or the Presbyterian tradition, they would say anything that's not specifically stated in the Bible, we should not do. Now, Martin Luther was not that way. Anything that's not prohibited in the scriptures, we can do. So it doesn't say anything against candles, we can have candles. Or it doesn't say anything against incense, we can have incense. Whereas on the other side of, of the Reformation, in the Reformed tradition, they would say, if it doesn't say to do it, we don't do it. And that's why Zwingli, interestingly enough, locked the, the organ in the, West, in the Zurich uh, Munster, the, the, the cathedral there, and it stayed locked until 1973. So, so, I mean, they didn't, it didn't say that, that you have to have an organ, so they locked it for several centuries. So anyway, that's an example. Of, but since infant baptism is, not, is nowhere commanded in scriptures, I mean, this is the principle that they have, that they say they go by, it really doesn't fit. So anyway, I mean, there's a theology to support it, yes. And, and anybody can make up a theology that's consistent and all the rest. The question is, is does it... Does it reflect the scriptures? Is it based on the Bible? And that's, that's key. So I just want to get in this uh, here. All right, I want to talk about the baptism circumcision analogy. And the analogy is from physical circumcision and water baptism. It has to be these two things. Physical circumcision, which, I mean, they're saying that because the Old Testament people of God circumcised their babies without them knowing why or anything like that, then baptism is justification for us to baptize our babies even though our babies don't know anything about it. Which doesn't explain why they baptize female babies. But anyway, this just pointing that out. But anyway, so physical circumcision involves a knife. It involves cutting, okay? And water baptism, I'm talking about literal water baptism, whether it's, that's a immersion there 
or uh, that would be a Greek Orthodox one. They actually take the whole baby and dip the whole baby under the water three times really fast. And what's really interesting to that, when you watch the parents, because they're so, especially the mothers, when they're doing that, because they're all so happy when the baby's there and they're getting baptized, but the first time that baby goes under the water, you can see the look of horror on her face because, ah, that's my baby here, and they do it really fast. One, two, three. So that's what they do. And I'll tell you, those diapers can get heavy. Uh, once they're underneath there, I'm just saying. I know that uh, I've experienced that with my daughter. We didn't baptize her, but boy, she got in the bathtub once when she shouldn't have. And boy, that thing. And of course, they're slippery anyway, you know. So anyway, so anyway, this is the analogy. It's physical circumcision, a real life cutting, and water baptism. Okay, that's really key for us to understand because we know we have a spirit baptism too. But, but I'm talking about this is what the analogy here would be a more sprinkling uh, situation. So the most significant Old Testament or New Testament passage. I don't know if you've, uh, can you see that? I don't think it's a real phone, but anyway, it is a real baby. So uh, it's Colossians chapter 2, 11 through 12. And I think sometimes us as Baptists, we want to shy away from this passage because it mentions baptism and it mentions circumcision. And we think, oh, wait a minute. That's what the justification for others are. And we've missed the whole point, a very important point of what this passage is all about, that how it can inform us about our baptism. And that's too bad. That's the why here. Uh, it's, but well, why is this the most significant baptism passage for those who believe in, in infant baptism? Because it's the only passage in the New Testament that mentions both circumcision and baptism. And if you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Synod of Dort and those kind of, pass, those kind of older confessions that the Reformed use, they'll have lots of passages that mention baptism. Some of them mention circumcision. Some of them don't mention either one, but they're used as justification of infant baptism, especially the Westminster Confession of Faith. And there's, yet there's only one of them that mentions both, and so they think this is their trump card. So, but let's take a look at what that passage says. It says in Colossians chapter 2, in whom ye also are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the putting off of the body of, of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are raised with him through the, faith, through the faith of the operation of God, which hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your, in your sins and uncircumcision of flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. I think the key points I'm wanting to, to point out here is if this is a physical circumcision, because remember, that's what the analogy is. They're taking their analogy all the way back to Genesis 17. Genesis 17 is the initiation of circumcision. That involved a knife, a real cutting, okay? So, but look at what kind of circumcision is this? If you have a knife, you're going to need to use what? Your hands. But it specifically says here, a circumcision made without hands. What kind of circumcision is that? I want to answer that question, okay? Because that's a really key. And then buried with him in baptism. Here's the, 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 the section here where it connects baptism and circumcision. Wherein you also are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. How does a baby experience faith in the operation of God? They don't know anything about it. 
they're either a little bit irritated because they get some cold water sprinkled on their forehead, or they get really upset in the Greek Orthodox tradition when they're getting, you know, immersed several times. I've got one picture of a baby. <laughs> his, his hands are on both sides of the thing, and his feet are on the other side, and he doesn't want to go down, you know. So, anyway. Uh, but anyway, something is unusual here. But again, some, and some Reformed people say, well, this is obviously some sort of spiritual thing. You know, it's a, no, 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 it's not. It has to be a physical circumcision if you're going to take it back to Genesis 17, and it has to be water baptism because that's what we're doing here. That's what, we're, that's what they recognize as baptism. So, it, so how do you circumcise someone without using your hands? I want you to think about that. But I want, and, and you can see in your notes here, I'm not actually telling you all. If I'm missing some blanks, or if you're missing some blanks, let me know. Number two, understanding the analogy, physical circumcision and water baptism. The most significant passage here is Colossians 2. And then why? Because it mentions both physical, uh, circumcision and baptism. But this is a baptism, uh, sorry, circumcision made without hands. And I want us to think about that because we're going to relate this to another passage, a very clear passage in the New Testament on baptism, and it's going to work out real well. All right. Promises in this Abrahamic covenant. This is where I'm talking about Genesis 17. And, and it's, uh, so it's a misapplication of the analogy. Uh, so, but what are the promises in the Abrahamic covenant? If you read the Bible, now there's what they would, many would call a covenant of grace, and there's all kinds of stuff in the covenant of grace. But, but if you're going to look at, at Genesis 17, let's see what that says. The, the, the promises in the Abrahamic covenant were to bless Abraham to make his name great, to make him a great nation, this is the Jewish people, to give him and his descendants the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. That's part of the, that's what's going on in the covenant of grace there, and to establish a relationship with Abraham's descendants. And to bless the nation through Abraham's seed. And so, since they performed a circumcision on babies without asking them and stuff, they say, well, it's okay for us to do it there too. But interesting, um, Romans chapter 4 talks about Abraham being justified before he was, before circumcision. Okay, so that's a key point to make as well. And, and actually it was, he trusted in God by faith that God was going to, to fulfill these promises, even though he didn't have much evidence of anything going to work out. Why? Because Sarah couldn't have children. So, so that's why the, 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 he had to trust in God. So anyway, you see that there, and it's bold in... These are they're places where the Abrahamic covenant is talked about, but particularly in chapter 17 here. Okay, uh, there's a prevalence of circumcision in North America and Africa and Australia, and not so much in Europe, actually, interestingly, or South America, apparently not. All right, so... Um, yeah, my, my idea of this is that this is a spiritual circumcision. Now, wait a minute. I'm a literal interpreter of the Bible, and I'm saying this is a spiritual circumcision. So, so I need to justify that, and that needs to be very, very clear. So is there a precedent for this? Is this a novel view uh, that this is a spiritual circumcision? Well, first of all, it's an odd kind of way to describe a circumcision made without hands if it's going to be a physical circumcision. So, so 
if that's what the analogy is all about. I think that's really important. But, but let's look in the context of, of Colossians 2. Whenever you're looking at a passage of Scripture, the context is the key. And what many people would say, and these would be people that aren't necessarily Baptists, this would, they would say, this actually isn't really a sacramental passage. And uh, that means you're talking about the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, or baptism. I remember talking with a lady at work, and she was reading her Bible at work. And this was a secular place. So, so I talked to her about it. I thought, hey, that's great. What are, you, what are you reading about? And she says, oh, I just love it uh, that uh, I'm reading about the Lord's Supper in John 6. And I thought to myself, and I'm thinking, mm, I'm not really remembering John 6 being a major passage on the Lord's Supper. I don't quite get what you're talking about. So I was kind of stumped about that. Oh, yeah, Lord's Supper is right here. This is just how it all works out. And I'm thinking, I don't, I got to study. I don't know what you're talking and, and I was a seminary student. I should know this, right? John 6, Lord's Supper, right? No, no, no. That's the Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper because Christ is talking to his disciples about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. And, and yet the whole thing, if you, that's in the, uh, say, verse 51 through 59. But if you look at verse 41 and through 49, you're saying, talking about, hey, I am the bread of life. And he that believes on me shall never hunger and, 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 and never thirst and all that stuff. He's talking about believing on him. This is the passage of scripture where he starts with multitudes of disciples. And at the end of the passage, he's only got 12 left. So this was a major, major time, but it really is not, again, a sacramental passage. It's not talking about the Lord's Supper. It's not talking about the ordinances at all. They're missing the analogy. But anyway, let's talk about the context of, of Colossians 2. And really, it's a doctrinal passage, and the Colossians church had been enamored with certain heresies about the doctrine of angels, about worshiping God on certain days, eating certain foods and stuff. And he says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him, here is what he's saying, Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. When you have Christ, you don't need anything else. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christ is everything that God is. And when you trust in Christ, you don't need these other uh, traditions and philosophies and other things that they were led astray into. That's the whole point of the, the, of the passage, what Christ is, is, is enough. And ye are complete in him who is the head of all principality and powers. And so these spirit beings that you are enamored with, that's not what you need. You don't need to put your trust in them. You have Christ. And, that's, and this is verse 10. And right after that comes verse 11, 11, 12, 13. That's what we just read. So, so that's really the key of the passage is that they were being enamored by things that weren't focusing, them on, focusing themselves on Christ. And now, in fact, they were going away from Christ. They were actually not being dedicated to Christ. I want you to keep that in mind. See, they were, they were losing their dedication to, to Christ alone. That's really key, okay? And then he, and then he makes this, you are, circumcision, you are circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. Okay? And I want you to keep that in mind too. So let's take a look at, is there anywhere in the Bible that talks about circumcision that's not like a real actual physical circumcision? Well, 
there is. Now, this is talking about being loyal to God, being dedicated to God. I want you to keep this in mind. That's the context of the passage we're here in. And, and that loyalty, that dedication to God is important. So let's take a look at um, this. Okay, we've already talked about that. Uh, I'm going to go here. Is this, is this a novel view? Is that a suppressant? That's supposed to be the circumcision there. Anyway, what about liberal, literal interpretation? And I think that's important. So let's look at the Old Testament precedents for the idea of spiritual circumcision. So let's take a look at some of these passages. We're going to read them through. I might just do that from the back of the room because it's a little easier for me to see that. So let's take a look. Note Deuteronomy 30 was written some 700 years or so after Abraham and the circumcision of Genesis 17 took place. That's really in, helpful to understand because it's, it, they've already been doing circumcision for a long time, the Jewish people have. Okay? So then uh, it says, And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thou, thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. Now remember, Abraham, sorry, uh, Moses is writing to the children of Israel who have not yet passed into the, to, uh, left Egypt and, and passed into the, the promised land. Verse 6, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and that thou may, mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thee and all the rest. But, but notice there, he's going to circumcise their heart. Now if you take a knife and cut away part of the heart, that's probably not going to end up in anything really good for the person you know they're going to probably die from that okay so you you really can't cut i mean if you were trying to think of this in a literal way and it's 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 clearly not that the bible can can give us analogies and give us understandings and and picture picturesque language but what's he really wanting here What's the whole point of this passage? Bring you into the land. You need to obey. You need to, to, he will do thee good, multiply thee above thy fathers. And, but I want you to circumcise your heart to do what? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul that thou mayest live. The idea is what? Being dedicated to God and blessings will come. Be dedicated to God. That's the whole point. I want you to be dedicated to God. Now, this is going to get even more clear. Um, this is Deuteronomy 10, only the, Lord, only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is to say, therefore, well, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. Are they being loyal and dedicated to God here? No, they're not being loyal and dedicated. They're actually turning away from God, and they're being stiff-necked about it, and he's saying circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Again, what's he talking about? What would they understand that is? The Lord thy God is, is, is the, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and terrible, which regardeth not purses nor taketh reward. He doesn't take bribes. So he's saying you need to be dedicated to God. There are the themes there, purification and dedication to God. Now, does that have anything? I just want you to keep in your mind Colossians chapter 2 and sticking with Christ and being loyal to Christ. Then Jeremiah 4.4, 4, circumcise yourselves, Lord. Now, this is written in the prophetical times. This is, this is uh, at or right around the time that, that the southern kingdom gets captured by the Babylonians. And he's saying, circumcise yourselves to the Lord 
and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. What's he saying? They have become impure. They've been worshiping other idols. They've been pursuing foreign alliances. They haven't been relying on God to protect them. He wants them to come back to him. He wants them to be dedicated to him. Question you might ask is, okay, this circle of spiritual circumcision stuff. Does the Bible ever make a distinction between physical circumcision and spiritual circumcision? I want you to keep that in your mind here just in a second. Say, okay. So, uh, Leviticus... Um, 40, 40, 26, 40, 41. They shall confess their sin and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespass against me, that they also have walked contrary to, unto me, and that I all, and also, and that also, and that I also, excuse me, walked contrary to, unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then, if their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and then they, and then they accept the punishment of their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac, and I'll remember my covenant with Abraham. Will I remember and I will remember the land. He's saying there, after you go into your, to the promised land, don't turn away from me. If you do, I will accept it if you come back to me, if you become dedicated once more to me, if you be loyal to me, then I will remember my covenant with you. And he's, again, there, the uncircumcised hearts be humbled, Okay. Again, the theory there, the, the themes there is repentance and dedication. Then Jeremiah 25. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will punish all them that are uncircumcised, that with, sorry, all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised. So it doesn't matter where you're from. If you're disobedient to God, you'll get punished. So Egypt and Judah. Ooh, wow. That's like putting it right there. And Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the uttermost cor corners that dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised and the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Now, everybody knew that the heart of Israel, they're already circumcised because they got circumcised with ba as babies. But now he's declaring them as uncircumcised in the heart. Is there a difference between physical circumcision and spiritual circumcision here? Yeah. All these people, except for the Judah, <coughs> are all uncircumcised. And the house of Israel are uncircumcised, not necessarily physically, but in the heart. I want you dedicated to me. I want you loyal to me. I want you to, be, to, to realize that I'm all, you, I'm all you need there. Again, clear distinction between physical and spiritual circumcision there. And the theme is repent and be dedicated to God. Okay. Let me just get you this, this one here, too. Ezekiel. This is, so I want you to see, this is all over the Old Testament, okay? Uh, and in, in that you have brought into my sanctuary strangers. So this is Ezekiel writing during the, the, the uh, exilic time period when they're in exile. And this is rehearsing some of their, their shortcomings and why they deserve the punishment. So they brought non-Jewish people into the, the temple area that they shouldn't have, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh. Again, very clear distinction there. To be in my sanctuary, to pollute it, even my house, where when you offer my bread, the fat and the blood, they have broken my covenant because of all your abominations, and you have not kept 
the charge of mine holy things, but ye have set keepers of my charge in my sanctuary for yourselves. Thus saith the Lord God, no stranger, uncircumcised in heart, nor uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary of any stranger that is among the children of Israel. So again, here you have even more so, I think, than the last passage, a clear distinction between physical and spiritual circumcision, okay? So what I'm saying in Colossians 1 is not something that's unusual for the Bible. Again, the theme there is repent. He wants his people to return to him, be dedicated to him, respect God's holiness there. Now, it's not just in the Old Testament, too, because, well, I went past this one, um, Je Jeremiah 6, to, all, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised. Okay, now we thought of the heart being uncircumcised. Now their ears, they will not listen to God. Again, if you take a knife to someone's ear, that's probably not going to work out well. Look like Spock or something. Anyway, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I'm full of fury uh, of the Lord. I am weary with holding them. I will pour it upon the children of abroad and upon the assembly of the young men together. For even the husband with the wife shall be taken, the aged with him that is full of days. Again, the theme there is repentance, dedication to God. So, this is not something just in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament too. This is Stephen's speech when he, right before he was martyred and he's rehearsing the, the history of Israel, how they had persecuted the prophets. And it says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so did you. Now, right after this, he gets stoned. So, He's not ingratiating himself to his audience, but he's telling them that you deserve the punishment that, that has come upon you. Which of the prophets have your fathers not, <laughs> have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you are now the, uh, you're now the betrayers and murderers. So it's in the New Testament. It's also in Romans chapter 22. Uh, but a Jew is one in, inwardly. He's talking about... Uh, verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and, and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. The, the circumcision was a mark of the sign of the, of the covenant, yes. But it doesn't mean that, mean that you're now automatically going to serve God the rest of your life. Why? Because the whole history of Israel doesn't prove that that's not true. But a, but a Jew or someone who is really dedicated to me one is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Oh, so, so here's the, that same distinction then again that we saw in the Old Testament. So here we are back in, the, in our New Testament passage. Ye in whom ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. I think that, the, again, the theme is the same as what's in the Old Testament. Because of what God has done for you in Colossians uh, 2, 13 through 23, be dedicated to God in Colossians chapter 3 and following, as is pictured in baptism. So, so here he's talking about in whom you are circumcision with, circumcised with the circumcision made without hand, that is the putting off of the body of sins by the, of the flesh with the circumcision of Christ. Someone want to read Romans chapter 6, verses Three through five. Romans six is a great passage on baptism. Okay. 
not know that many of us that were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into the death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also shall walk in newness of life. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Keep going. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Okay, so baptism is death. Many people would see that, you know, that the, the death. Martin Luther saw this too. Martin, uh, de baptism is death. That's what it pictures. It's, it's death. And as Christ really, really did die, I mean, he suffered a physical death. There's no question about it. He, he died. We should be attempt as much as we can to live our life free from the control of sin in our lives because because he says even so we should walk in newness of life and let's not forget the whole context of this passage Christ, uh, paul is talking about can we continue in sin that grace may abound absolutely not that's verse one and so our baptism is to is to show one of the aspects of baptism is to show that we're dedicated to God. I want to show that people that I'm going to be a follower of Christ and that just as Christ died, I need to show as much as I can that I'm dead to my sins. That sins does not, sin does not have that, that, that control over me. Of all the reasons Paul could talk about why we shouldn't continue in sin that grace may abound, he brings up our baptism. Why? Well, it's supposed to show that we're dedicated to Christ. And I think that's an aspect of baptism that is important for us to keep in mind. Maybe so, because we don't emphasize it that much. But, but it is supposed to. I mean, we're not going to live free from sin. But we should be fighting it all the time. And I'm going to make an analogy of my own here. But anyway, so spiritual circumcision is a legitimate interpretation of Colossians 2 and corresponds with, uh, best with a context and thrust of the passage. Baptism is an act of dedication to God, picturing the death, burial, and resurrection, which leads to the new life, a life of dedication to God, which means putting away the sins of the flesh. Now, you might be saying here, I've already been baptized. This really doesn't really matter a whole lot to me because I'm baptized, and we know that baptism doesn't save us, so what does it have any effect on us now? And here's my own analogy. My wife and I were invited to a wedding of good friends of ours in England and we went and we went there and I thought you know while we're in the wedding it's interesting British wedding you got to wear a hat if you're a woman and all that I mean it's a big deal my wife got a hat she liked that and uh, they had me pray at the service and I, th I thought that's fine that's good and I thought of myself okay so I'm coming all the way to this wedding and I like the couple and I we really love the family and stuff so that's good and I w we were glad and privileged and honored to be there but uh, I thought um, the only role I have here, basically, I'm just a witness, you know, that I'm there and that, that they made these vows before God. And, and that also reminded me the fact that, you know, if I knew the couple very well, and, and any couple that, that get married, and if you knew them really, really well, and you saw that, wow, the husband is not treating his wife the way he should be treating her, and I love that guy so much, and I'm really close to him, so that, you know, you had that relationship, you could speak into his life and say, look, I was there when you made a vow to your wife that you would be dedicated to her and that you would treat her well and stuff, and you're not living that way now. Now, take that over to baptism. We do those 
publicly. Now, that, interestingly enough, most of church history baptisms were not done publicly. They were done by the, by the midwife in the Middle Ages, and nobody would know about it, and nobody was there. And an emphasis more recently in the 20th century is to make baptism much more of a public or a church-type activity. So they're trying to work on that. But our baptisms are public. Why? Because we're showing where we were witnesses to the fact that someone wanted to be to, to be called and to be known as a follower of Christ, someone to be dedicated to Christ. And so if I have a relationship with that person and I spoke, could speak into his life and say, look, hey, the life you're leading right now is not what you vowed or not what you, what you showed when you got baptized. You're not living your baptism here in that sense that not that he's going to get you saved, no way, but that you show that you are dead to your sins. Just as Christ died, you died to your sins, and you're supposed to fight that, and you're not living that right now. And you need to change your ways, because I was there when you got baptized. That, that's, a, I think, a good analogy to show that this is an aspect of baptism. So therefore, does your baptism mean anything to you today? No, it doesn't mean anything, because it doesn't save me. Well, no, it doesn't save you, but it was a time that you said, I want to be known as a follower of Christ. So does your baptism matter to you today? To you today? Well, it should, in the sense that it, you pictured you were going to fight sin in your life, not just give in to it no matter what. And, and it does matter to you today, not for salvation, but it matters to you for, because you, of what you vowed, what you promised, in front of other people, and certainly for, for God. So, so I don't think it has any salvific evidence, it's nothing, nothing sacramental about it, but it is something important that we ought to think about of what we were actually trying to show in front of everybody when we did get baptized. And then the second application I think is for us too, is if you haven't been baptized, and there are churches I know of, one pastor showed me, he was kind of distressed about it, he says, it said in the doctrinal statement, baptism shall be urged on every member. It didn't say it would be required. And he had a deacon in his church that was never been baptized. Well, how does that work? I mean, that's kind of, something's broken there. It wasn't the Baptist church, but a, a similar church, a conservative one, not, not liberal by any means. But, but they didn't have a really high view of baptism there. And again, we don't have a high view of it either as far as anything salvation. But it is supposed to show that someone is wanting others to know with the accountability of a local church that they want to be a follower of Christ. And I think that's what's important for us to remember about baptism is how it affects us, can even affect us even today. Any questions you might have on that? Does that make sense? Yes. Lynn. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. That's right. Yeah. Maybe some of you have been confirmed at some point in your life, realized, ah, oh, that's not quite right. Yeah. Somebody else? Any other comments? Yes. Ah, dedicating the child. That's interesting. And that's a very common thing in Jamaica, too, where they will dedicate a child. And that is, it's not really for the child. 
because it's not going to do anything for the child, but it's, it's saying, I want everybody to know, and even in the context of the local church, even asking for help, I suppose, in raising this child to, to be dedicated to God. And that means if the kid grows up and wants to be a missionary to, to the, the snake poison capital of the world is Australia. They got more poisonous snakes in Australia than anywhere else. If they want to be a, a missionary to Australia, well, that means we're never going to see them. Not very often. That's on, literally on the other side of the world. You say, wait a minute. I dedicated them to God. God can do with them what they want. So, so I think there might be value in it, but certainly not for the baby. And, you know, you can pray over the baby and stuff. Some people do that. Some people don't. Uh, I think it's modeled after Hannah, perhaps, in the Old Testament. And I think we should dedicate everything we have to God. We got a brand new photocopier in Jamaica. And you know what? We had a prayer around that copier and, and you know, asked God to dedicate, we dedicated this, that he would keep it working, and that it would help the ministry of the Bible college. I mean, you know, that it wasn't anything, uh, you know, like sacramental about that either. I mean, we were just... We're just pray, praising the Lord we have this. Jamaica has heat, dust, and humidity, and those are the things that break down these things. And so we were just praying, praying that God would, would use this for his glory. So, so I'm not equating the photocopier to a baby. But I am saying that, that we should dedicate everything we have to God. And you know what? Sometimes that accountability is not a bad thing. Because you know what? Family uh, connections are close, and they should be. Nowadays, we got ways that... I remember the first time I saw my mom on Skype when I was a missionary. Oh, that was so awesome. I mean, you, you can't... I can't describe it the way it was, but it was amazing. It just was so wonderful to see her, you know. Now, that's not as good as hugging her, I know, but, you know, it's, it was something, so that's good. All right, anybody else? Okay, well, let's just close in prayer. We'll be done. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity we have to look in the, your word and see some things that I think are helpful to us, especially the, in this analogy that, that sometimes we, we don't want to look at Colossians 2 in regard to baptism because of what other people think about it, but it, helping us recapture really what the, the point here is, is that show ourselves dedicated to Christ, that we don't need anything else than Christ. Christ is all we need. Christ, we are completing Christ. Christ has, is the, the representation, is the fullness of the God bodily, and we just thank you for that. And, and thank you for, for even directing the word to be written in such a way that we could have this, this uh, analogy uh, that would be helpful for us to understand, even in Romans 6 and other places. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. Oh. I, I missed a blank, did I? Okay. Point five. It's not a sacramental passage. Sacramental passage, right. It's a doctrinal passage. Not a sacrament. Thank you, Matthew. Did, I get, did anybody else get, miss one? All right.